Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. For now, we're going to be jumping back in where we left off last week. This is Mark chapter 14, verses 66 through 72. That's the end of the chapter. As you're turning there or tapping there, um, by the way, again, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the verses and stuff up on the screen. The, the nice new big screen. Can you all see the lyrics a little bit better? I think it's nice. Um, I mean, I think it's nice from here. I haven't actually seen it from out there yet. I've been up here all morning. Uh, but uh, what an amazing uh, thing that we get to actually see uh, the lyrics and, and things like that rather than squinting at them on Sunday mornings. Uh, so uh, praise God for that. Uh, he has blessed us with the ability to do this. We'll have a second one over here next week so everybody can kind of see a little bit easier. Anyway, all that being said, uh, if you're, if you're new here, again, uh, we are a Christ-centered church. This is one of those, uh, the, uh, this is actually our top value. We started thinking about like values as a church, and we uh, talked to the leadership team and asked some questions about like just who are we as a church? Not like who do we want to be, just who are we as a church? And we found that like our number one value was Christ-centeredness. Right? We want to be centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ, and so we seek to know him through his word because ultimately he reveals to us God, right? who, uh, he says that he is the revelation of the Father, and we seek then to worship him as well and do that corporately and individually in spirit and in truth, and then we seek to proclaim the good news into the world that they might also believe. That's kind of who we are as a church, as a Christ-centered church. And so we preach Christ every single week because he's at the center of everything that we do. And we believe that he is at the center of everything that God has done in redemptive history. This is the person work of Jesus Christ. And so even in this passage that we're about to look at this morning, uh, which is about Peter's denial of Jesus, this passage too also points us ultimately back to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Even though at this point in the narrative... The crucifixion hasn't happened yet. And I think we're going to see how we're redeemed by Jesus through Peter. We could see this in Peter's life. We're going to take a little bit of a look at that this morning. But uh, now that you've had enough time to flip and tap and whatever to your, uh, to your verses this morning, go ahead and stand with me if you're able as we read the word of God this morning. Again, Mark chapter 14, verse 66 through 72. And it says this, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You are also with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to, again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders began to say to Peter, Certainly, you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down. 
and wept. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's go to him in prayer one more time this morning. Lord God, we pray that you would bless the hearing of your word this morning. You would bless the preaching of your word this morning. That, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you might move in us, might apply this word to our hearts, for, Lord, we know we cannot. But, Lord, as we listen intently, we desire to understand. Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace of transforming our lives. Lord, sanctify us in your truth. Lord, I pray that you would give us hope this morning, where, Lord, we might have felt hopeless, and perhaps rightfully so for a time. Lord, give us the hope of Christ one more time this morning, that, Lord God, we might glorify you with our entire lives. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can have a seat. I, uh, I love that, that Peter is in the scriptures. Uh, I, I say that because Peter is, is an amazing example uh, of, of the kind of friend that you need in your life. They're the ones that say the things that you would say, but your filter says no, right? You know, you know who I'm talking about. The people who will do the things that you're, you have the common sense to say no to, right? Peter's this guy who's like, he's out there right? Like, there's no filter, just completely unfiltered Peter, right? Uh, and he's willing to do whatever it is uh, that comes to his mind. So Peter, just a, a, a few passages ago, hears Jesus say, you all will run from me. And then uh, Peter's like, nah, no, Jesus, I'm not going to do that. What are you talking about? And then he'll he comes back and he says, uh, Lord, I will even die for you. I'll even die for you. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, we find that Peter, overwhelmed with zeal, right, chops off a guy's ear in the name of Jesus. Don't do, it. Don't do that, by the way. But he's doing the things that everybody kind of hopes that they would have the courage to do with that sort of zeal. But he's like, Jesus is like, no, you can't do that. That's not okay. And it seems as though at that point, Peter's spirit is kind of broken. He doesn't know what to do anymore. And so he, he then deserts Jesus just like the rest of the disciples. He runs away. Peter stuck out as one of the disciples. He's seen as one who is associated with Jesus. By the way, in the, in the course of this narrative, if you weren't here last week, Peter's standing in this courtyard outside of the high priest's house where they're holding court against Jesus. They want to convict him. And they've just convicted him of blasphemy, which is a capital crime. And so Peter is out here trying to like disguise himself as one of the servants. He's warming himself by the fire. He's like, oh yeah, like I'm just I'm with one of these guys that's in there. He wasn't maybe allowed inside, but he was outside with the servants just trying to blend in so he could hear what was going on. Interestingly, in another gospel account, we find that uh, he was within eyeshot, like he, could, he had a sight line to Jesus because when he denies Jesus the third time, Jesus looks right at him. So like he's trying to stick around to hear what's going on. And people could see that Peter wasn't uh, exactly like everyone else. He was a Galilean. And this was kind of a backwater town. 
If you've ever had this stereotype applied to you because you have a certain type of dress or you have a certain type of accent, uh, the same thing was happening here. It was kind of a backwater town. He might have had a deeper accent. In fact, he's called out as having a, a different dialect than other people. And he may have looked and even sounded something like Jesus, who was a Galilean. And, you know, spending three years with people, uh, with a a man, like every single day, you're going to start to pick up mannerisms. You're going to start to pick up speech patterns and things like that. So maybe Peter looked a little bit more like Jesus than you might expect. People could see that Peter, despite his best attempts at hiding it, really wasn't like everyone else. He was recognized as being one of Jesus' disciples, even though he wasn't acting like it at the time. Even though he wasn't acting like it at the time. Peter had entered into sin by running away from Jesus and was about to go even further, but the world knew who he was. He kind of had a a way about him that seemed like he was part of Jesus' group of disciples. Maybe something to be said here, to those of us who are Christians, the, the world recognizes you. The world recognizes you. If you've been with Jesus, something's different. They might not be able to put their finger on it, but something's different. They recognize who you are. If you trust in Christ, it's not possible for you to completely hide who you are. And so if you've been with Jesus, others are going to see your inconsistency if you are living in sin. They might call you out. If you've got good friends, they're going to call you out. They're going to go, hey, I thought you said you were a Christian. This seems inconsistent. Like, even if they're not a Christian themselves, they're going to go like, I thought this was part of who you are. What's up with this? If you've got good friends. To be honest with you, most friends aren't that good. They're going to look at you and be like, this person's a hypocrite. And they're just going to write you off. They're just going to go, okay, like, you know, they live like that, but they would preach something different. Look, while sin is a reality, even for the Christian, we don't always get a chance to tell people that grace is a thing, right? We don't always get that chance to engage in a conversation and go, okay, hey, um, you know, I know I messed up, but like Jesus is going to forgive me and I don't want to live like that. You might not get that chance. And so this, there's this old school mentality of, they, they call it your witness. They, this, this phrase is sometimes used as a, uh, as a legalistic tool to kind of contort you into a certain shape, a certain way of living. But it's a, it's a good paradigm. I, I'm hoping that we can kind of redeem it here this morning. Who the world sees you act like says something about who your Savior is. Is it, are you consistent in your living? Where, what are you doing with the rest of your life? If you say, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, and then go out and walk in a different way, what are you saying to the world? Look, as Christians, we must not embrace sin as a way of life. We have to leave it behind, first because it grieves God. That's the number one reason. To be honest with you, I don't know if you need any other reason, but there are other reasons. Secondary reason here is that because others understand Jesus through you, each one of you. As you live your life in public, people see Jesus through you. Are you living in a way that's consistent with what you believe? But sin, even heinous sin, can be committed 
by believers, can't it? Maybe you're like, I don't know, can it? <laughs> Maybe you're asking the question, well, I would say yes. In fact, in kids today, uh, they are doing an age-appropriate version of David and Bathsheba. It's a little bit of a risque story, but they are handling it quite well, don't worry. Um, <laughs> Brittany and I uh, talked about this uh, for, for some time, and, uh, and it, you know, we, we feel pretty good about it. Um, if you don't remember this story, well, let's start at the beginning with who David was called to be. 1 Samuel 13, 14, God is talking to Saul, and he says, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has uh, sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So the prophet is speaking to Saul, and it seems that, that David, who is being called out here, is a man after God's own heart. He's a holy man. He's set apart. And yet, in 2 Samuel 11, which I won't regale you with the whole tale here today, in 2 Samuel 11, David does something pretty heinous. He sees Bathsheba bathing on a roof. What she was doing bathing on a roof, I don't know. Kind of, kind of a weird situation. And then, and then as king, he commands her to be brought to him. This is probably the, the first in many, many steps of, of a problem, right? So even if, even if all the rest of it hadn't happened, this was a step in the wrong direction because he, as king, commanded her to come to him. You don't say no to your king. This is a difficult situation already. He says, I want her to come to me. But then he proceeds to have physical relations with her. And his, one of his friends, one of the, the, the people uh, that, that trusted him is, his, is her husband. And so he's like, well, I have to... And he, he, they, they end up, uh, she ends up being pregnant, and she, he's like, I've got to get rid of this guy. I gotta figure this out. So he's, in fact, he first uh, tries to convince the guy that uh, he's the dad. And then, when that doesn't work, he sends the guy to the front lines to be killed. David, a man after God's own heart. I don't, I don't know exactly what you might call it. I don't know if David in this circumstance was a rapist or not, but you might call him not. It was forced. I mean, whether she wanted to come or not, like, we don't know. So maybe. Certainly an adulterer, right? Certainly a murderer. A man after God's own heart. You might be going, what? I thought this was God's guy. He's a, but now he's a, an adulterer and a manipulator and essentially a murderer. What's going on? Well, this is the reality of sin. Sometimes it creeps in and it does terrible things. We do terrible things because of it. We're not, we're not innocent of any of these things. But God's people, true Christians even, can do terrible things. But if they are truly God's people, then he will bring them back. He will bring them back. Peter was about to backslide hard here. Read uh, the first three verses here of this passage. 
starting in verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You were also with Jesus uh, the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. So let's stop there for a moment. If you remember back to Mark 14.31, if you could throw that on the screen, it says, but he, that is Peter, said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. The very thing that he promised that he would not do, even if it meant his death, Peter has now done. This is heinous sin. It's a terrible sin. We talked about this idea in my CG kind of in in depth last week. If you make a promise to God and fail to keep it, that deserves wrath like any other sin. You make a promise to God, then you have now bound yourself to a law that it's even outside of the law that he has given you. You've said, Lord, I promise. If you say, I promise to God, you better mean it. You say, I promise to God, and you break it. That is sin. It's not a a case of, oh, like, well, he didn't need me to do that anyway. We can't treat this with flippancy. No, you bound yourself to a law beyond the moral law, and then you broke it voluntarily both times. It's a problem. This is as much sin as any other, and it deserves wrath like any other sin. We can't treat the grace of God as flippant. It's not just, oh, well, like, I made that promise, but, uh, oh, man, sorry, God. And that's it. It's not like that. Peter made a promise to God himself, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And he failed to uphold it. What a terrible sin. Sometimes we treat the, God, the grace of God with that same flippancy that I was just talking about. And, but we need to remember the cost of our sins, don't we? We talk about Jesus all the time. We talk about the payment rendered for our sins, and we go, oh, well, he died. That's not it, is it? That's not all. He died on a Roman cross after having been beaten and torn to shreds. That blood spilled, that flesh torn, that time spent hanging on a cross, that's the payment for your sin. That one sin that you're thinking of right now, the one that's just kind of going off in the back of your mind, you know what it is. He paid for that with his life, with his blood, with his pain, his suffering. Now, this is a, an amazing grace to us, but we cannot forget that while grace is free, it is not cheap. But Peter here failed to, to keep his promise, and we see that God was actually immediately gracious. Let's say in the, in the last part of that verse, and he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. First time. Warning. God said, don't go here. That was an act of providence. In that moment when the rooster crowed, Peter should have known what was about to happen. He should have turned away, but he didn't. 
The rooster crowed and he ignored the warning. In other gospel accounts, we see that Jesus had told Peter, before the rooster crows, then you will deny me three times. This is not inconsistent with the narrative that we find here, where he tells Peter that before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. In the other gospels, those words can be understood as before the rooster finishes crowing. And so Mark, being presumably Peter's version of the gospel, uh, gives us a bit more detail because it happened to Peter. This is his perspective. And so he's, he knows what Jesus said specifically. He's like, no, he said, he said two times, precisely two. And so God warns him with that first rooster crowing. God often issues warnings to us throughout our lives. We have warnings through a nagging conscience. Something in you says, don't do this, or you shouldn't have done this. We have warnings through negative consequences. Sometimes little things happen to us that we're like, oh, man, I shouldn't have done such and such, this sin. God warns you away from it, says, don't go here, don't continue in this. And finally, we have warnings through his word. These warnings serve to protect us, but only if we heed them. Look, in an eternal sense, God will save all of his people without exception. We affirm this unquestionably. But in this temporal sense, in the sense that, that we look at life, right? It's this, it's this thing that's, you know, it's stuff and places and changes and time, right? God sees things eternally, but we see these th- things through the course of time. In this temporal reality, God uses warnings and practical measures, the practical or common means of grace to keep us, doesn't he? You'll feel this. You read his word, you're like, man, thank you, Lord, for protecting me from going down that path, for correcting my way of life. I see it all the time. I feel it all the time. These warnings serve to protect us in this temporal sense. God uses them to like I said, hold on to us. We have warnings like Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. This is a scary passage. It says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened to have trusted, or who have trusted or tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who t- for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God, but it bears, if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and in its end is to be burned. Whew. A sobering reality. This is a warning. This is a warning not only to Christians, but to to anyone who has sat in church. It's a warning to everyone who reads this. If you have partaken of these means of grace, then you walk away completely, utterly. The warning is there. There is no coming back. Now, for those of you who are concerned for yourselves, I would argue 
perhaps you shouldn't be as concerned depending on where you sit. Because these warnings ultimately exist for two kinds of people. These warnings exist for those who will see the warning and turn from disaster. Right? Hey, you're about to walk off into unbelief, complete apostasy. You're about to walk away from Jesus Christ. If that's you this morning and you hear this passage and you say, man, I was about to, but now today is not the day. I need to believe. I need to trust him. If you're warned away from disaster by this passage, then you're the first kind of person. The second kind of person reads this warning and turns away from the faith anyway. And they turn away permanently. They say, I'm done. That's it. I will not be warned. But those people will never desire to come back. That's the the clear delineation here. If you desire to come back, praise God, that's his grace in your life. That's okay. There is grace and forgiveness even for your lack of faith, even if you have turned away for a time. But for those who finally turn away, who walk away permanently, this warning is to give them no excuse. There is no excuse. Like I said, this, uh, this is a difficult passage, and I don't have time to do it full justice today, but I want to say this. It, it is not at all com- incompatible with the doctrine of election. If you're a doctrine of election kind of person and you're concerned, don't be. It's in God's word. And if you fear, as I've said, if you fear that you've committed apostasy or blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, this unforgivable sin, if you're concerned about that, you haven't. If you're worried about it, there is grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ, and we'll see that as we continue on. Like the warnings we find in Scripture, God issued a warning to Peter then. That rooster crowing the first time said, don't go here. And despite knowing full well what Peter would do, God still gave him everything he needed to stop that pattern of sin that was about to take place. So as to hold Peter completely responsible for his actions. God says, I've given you everything that you needed not to walk away, not to deny Jesus, but he did it anyway. He wasn't interested in warning signs. I hope that some of you are interested in warning signs this morning. Perhaps today, this one sermon, even if you never come back here again, maybe this one sermon is a warning sign to you, don't go there. But as as I said, Peter wasn't interested. He was committed to his course of action. And so let's continue to read in verses 69 through 71. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Peter, despite all of the warnings, persisted in his sin. He kept on his same course. You know, you'd think that even after the second time that someone asked him, and he felt as though he needed to deny it, that Maybe that would have been a warning because Jesus has already told him, hey, three times, man. He's like, no, I won't. Yeah, he's about to. Once once, uh, Peter has ignored all these warnings, he is now committing what I would call high-handed sin. 
Psalm 19, 12 through 13 describes two kinds of sin. It says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Two kinds of sin called out in Psalm 19 here. These are hidden errors. These things that we don't know we do. Right? Do you feel this? Like sometimes you realize after the fact that you've committed a sin and never intended to commit a sin. You're like, oh, I, I offended this person. I hurt this person. I didn't intend to hurt them, but I've committed the sin against them. Or maybe even like realizing that your motives were wrong after doing something. You're like, oh, I, I bought this new thing, whatever it is. And now I realize that that was, that was materialism creeping in. I wasn't trusting Jesus. I was hoping that that thing would bring me joy rather than Christ. Two kinds of sin here. That's the first kind. He says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Who can discern his errors? I come to find, by the way, that more and more as I uh, go through the Christian life, that my actions are even more tainted with sin at every step than I ever thought. I, I don't think that... that the work of sanctification is only that we become progressively more holy somehow. It's that we begin to see ourselves more truly. We begin to see the depths of our own depravity so that we can better experience the heights of God's grace. But there is a second kind of sin in this psalm. Presumptuous sins. These are different. They're what some would say as insolent sins. These are ones that are done in the full knowledge that they are sinful and that they are an affront to God. These are sins that we're like, okay, I'm going to do it anyway. I'll ask for forgiveness later. These are high-handed sins. You get what I mean by high-handed? Like, I, I know what I'm doing. I'm looking at my hand and I go out and I grasp that sin knowing full well what it is. That's presumptuous sin. Peter had veered off into presumptuous sin here. So like maybe his knee-jerk reaction to deny Jesus in that first time was a hidden fault. Maybe. Maybe that's a hidden fault. Maybe he didn't realize what was going on. He didn't really fully know what he was doing. Maybe it was just instinct, right? But the second time, after the rooster crowed, Peter knew what he was doing. Now, he didn't like it necessarily, but he knew what he was doing because he was saying, I value my own life over walking with Jesus. Look, and we see even more that high-handed sin begets even more sin, doesn't it? The stereotypical uh, sort of example is the, is the lie that keeps on lying, right? You give somebody one little mistruth, and then you have to say all these other lies to kind of cover it up. You have to create a whole new reality out here that will cover up what's actually going on. You have to describe your life in a different way. Depending on the size of that lie, you might end up just completely lying about most of the stuff in your life. Maybe that's just to one person or two people, or maybe it's a complete facade that you give to everybody. Peter began to not only sin directly as 
denying Christ, but he began to continue to, to grasp at more sins that he could do in order to help him along. Again, look here at verse 71, but he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. So yeah, he's denying Jesus again. But what are the other parts? It says that he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. It's really the, the same sort of mentality. But you might think of this as, you know, he's, he's dropping four-letter words or something like that. That's not what's going on here. No. Interestingly, Peter had previously made this promise to Jesus, right? He's breaking that promise to Jesus to go to death with him even before he denied him. But now Peter is making more promises he can't keep. Because when it says that he invokes a curse on himself, he is saying, I invite divine retribution upon myself if I am lying to you. He's making more promises he can't keep. He's just heaping sin upon himself, heaping wrath upon himself. He's like, no, no, no. Let me be accursed if I am lying. That's what he said. He's actually inviting damnation upon himself in order to get out of being associated with Jesus here. I think this is a, a point in time where we can see that sometimes God turns us over to our sin when we are obstinate in it for a time. Just to show us how good he is in saving and correcting and preserving us. Because I think that Peter was turned over at this point. He was just like, God said, you know what? I've given you the warning. You go do what you're going to do. I'll show you who I really am later. He's going to let him hang out in this period of time of deep and utter despair. He's going to let Peter do what he's doing and then reap the sadness of it in order to teach Peter what's going on. This whole situation was really to hold a mirror up to Peter and go, you're not who you thought you were, are you? I feel that sometimes when I read the Word of God. I'm like, I'm not sure I'm who I thought I was. I'm not as good as I thought I was. And yet, Hebrews 12, 6 teaches us that the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. How we can tell the difference between God's eternal judgment for sin versus his chastisement, sometimes it's hard to tell in the moment. We will know on the last day. But if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, you've been left to your own devices for a time, you should recognize that as God's chastisement. I like to use that word rather than judgment because judgment seems final, it's eternal, right? I like to talk about this in terms of chastisement because God's saying, hey, Peter, I'm gonna go let you do what you're gonna do just so I can show you myself, so I can bring you back, but it's gonna hurt in the meantime. But you've made this choice. You've gone off. You've done the thing that you wanted to do and you are going to reap the reward. He's teaching Peter. We're going to see that in this next verse, in verse 72. 
And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Grown man in public. Broke down and wept. Finally, in this last moment, he realizes what he's done. He's done the very thing that he promised he would not do. He's reaping the chastisement of God in that moment. He's saddened. He's brokenhearted. I don't think Peter knew what to do in this moment either. I don't think that he completely understood what was going on here yet. But Peter would ultimately be restored. For the last part of this sermon, I I want to look at two men, Peter and Judas. I want to look at the end of their stories because ultimately this is one of the last things we hear about Peter in the Gospel of Mark. I want to look at these two men and see what comparisons we have. So we get the rest of Peter's story in John 21, 15 through 19. And it says this, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. And when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Jesus invites Peter back in. There's an opportunity here for repentance. Peter experienced true repentance. There's faith here. When he says, Lord, you know that I love you. He's like, no, I I trust you. I love you. I trust you. Judas, however, is a different story, isn't he? If you know the story of Judas. Matthew 27, 3 through 10 says, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he hanged, or changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? He, he, he departed. And then he went and hanged, oh, sorry, what is this to us? And see to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it's blood money. Isn't that nice? Those priests decide that like, they want to develop a sense of morality right then and there. So they took counsel and uh, bought with uh, them the uh, potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. And then it was fulfilled, would have been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took 30 pieces of silver in the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for a potter's field, as the Lord directed me. We also get another glimpse of Judas's story in Acts 1, 16 through 19. It says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand, by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. 
for he was numbered among us and was allotted uh, his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem that that field was uh, called in their own language, Akeldama, which is the field of blood. This is Judas's story. Peter's story, uplifting. Jesus restores him completely. He says, follow me. Those two words, incredible. Different. And yet Judas. Judas has a difficult end to the story. You might notice some uh, difficulty here between the two texts that I just read. Uh, It says in one that the the priests bought the field, and then uh, it says in the other that Judas bought the field. Uh, The the harmonization of those two is that Judas had put a contract on a field, and they went and just fulfilled the contract, right? So, like, it's sort of both and. But Judas ends differently, doesn't he? Both of these men betrayed Jesus in a way. Peter turned his back on Jesus and then denied him in public. Judas brought people to take him by force. Romans 9, 27 through 30 says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as sand in the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had left us an offspring, we would have been like Sodom and like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. So what's the difference between Peter and Judas? Well, it's not remorse. It's not regret. And it's not repentance. Does that sound controversial? The difference between Judas and Peter is not repentance. Judas regretted what he had done, didn't he? He experienced deep remorse and sorrow. According to Matthew, Judas attempted to return the money. He was like, I know what I've done. I'm brokenhearted. I don't want this. I want to make repayment somehow. Peter likewise regretted what he had done. He broke down and wept. And according to Matthew, uh, the, the words used there are, he wept bitterly. You ever wept bitterly? Yeah. He, he understood what he had done there, and he was beside himself with sadness. And even for a time there, Peter was left. Between the, that point and, and the point where Jesus restores him, He's left with this remorse, this repentance, but really nothing to do with it. Like he doesn't, there's no action that can be done there. See, both men repented, but the quality of that repentance was very different. There are two kinds of repentance in the Christian life, really in the, the life of all human beings. Two kinds of repentance. One is repentance unto death, and the other is repentance unto life. Judas had repentance unto death. This is a repentance that turns from sin. That part's good, right? Turn from sin? That's a good thing. It turns from sin to 
righteousness. You're like, that seems controversial too. It's okay. We're going to get there. From sin to righteousness. This is the kind of repentance that attempts to bear the weight of the law. This is the kind of repentance that attempts to atone for sin. See, repentance unto death turns from sin into righteousness. Like I said, it might seem controversial, but many experience this kind of repentance. They have a remorse for what, you've, what they've done, and they spend their lives trying to make up for all the bad with all the good. We've seen plenty of this, right? Maybe you feel this in your own life. Maybe you've seen this in the lives of others. This is a very common theology. It's like karma. People like to integrate the idea of karma into Christianity. I don't know why. Because look, this is a massive misunderstanding of sin. Right? You can't think that, oh, well, as long as the good outweighs the bad, then God is good with me. We're fine. You can't think that way. That's not what's going on here. Again, that is a massive misunderstanding of sin. Luke 17, 7 through 10 says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keep, uh, keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, at once come and recline at a table? Will he rather not say to him, prepare a supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. What is your duty as a human being? Let's leave Christianity off the table. Simple enough. What is your duty? Perfection is your duty. God called you to be perfect, to absolutely and unquestioningly obey everything that he has commanded you to do without exception, perfectly. That is your duty as a human being. Scary place to be, isn't it? Are you perfect? I'm not. I know I'm not. Judas, though, understood this. He understood that he could not make up for what he'd done. See, there are two directions to go. Two directions to go. Judas took the second option. The second option is death and hell. He took, the, he took the consistent option. I know that's a hard thing to say. That's a hard thing to say. He took the option. He said, I'm going to be consistent with what I know. He knew the truth. He could not do anything to make it better. And you likewise cannot do anything to make your sin better. Not a single one of you. Not me. We can't do anything to make it right. Because we have sinned against a holy, an infinitely holy God. And that sin requires death. And so either we are perfect or we deserve death. 
But all is not lost. All is not lost. Otherwise, this wouldn't be a very good sermon, would it? Just leave it there. It'd be a dark sermon. No, there's hope, isn't there? Some of you know that hope. Some of you know that hope. I hope that all of you will know that hope. Peter, Peter didn't have repentance unto death. Peter experienced repentance unto life. Like repentance unto death, this type of repentance turns from sin. And it turns to not righteousness, but Christ. We turn from sin to Christ. Not self-righteousness, not an attempt to repay, because we can't repay. We turn to the one who has already paid everything for us. Jesus Christ went to the cross for your sins. If you believe in him, then you will experience forgiveness. It's not atonement for you. It's forgiveness. It's forgiveness. Like Judas, Peter recognized that he was hopeless on his own. He had betrayed his Lord and his friend. There was nothing he could do to make it right. He couldn't go back and try again. He couldn't hit the reset button. He could, all he could do is turn from that sin, but that's all he could do. He could go, I, I won't do it again, but he couldn't make up for it. The debt was already there, and there was no way to repay it. Like I said, in this period after the denial, after he breaks down and weeps, and before Jesus speaks to him and restores him. What a terrible place to be. He recognized how deep his depravity was. But then in, in Mark 16, 7, before he meets uh, Peter on the, on the beach, they have breakfast together. The angel who's standing in the tomb says what? Go tell his, that's Jesus, disciples and Peter. I love this. This is so important. He says, go tell his disciples and that one guy who messed up so bad that he doesn't think he can come back. He doesn't think he's worthy. He doesn't think he's one of the disciples anymore. He thinks he's, he needs to be so far distanced that he cannot come back. He thinks it's hopeless. He's like, no, no, no. The angel says, no, like, go get the disciples and Peter, that guy, and bring him to Jesus. If you have ever thought that you were hopeless in this life or that you were too far gone, think about how this angel said, go get Peter, this guy. Maybe you're that guy this morning. Go get Peter. And then as we read before, Jesus fully restores Peter. It is not hopeless. In fact, we preach that very hope every single week. It's not about your self-righteousness. You can't save yourselves, but Jesus can. He does. So I ask today, which way will you choose? Will you choose repentance unto death or will you choose repentance unto life? 
Will you choose your own self-righteousness, attempting to make good on the debt you can't pay? Or will you choose the righteousness bought by the blood of Christ, which covers every single sin? Will you choose despair, or will you choose hope? We can all find ourselves in these moments of despair, where we feel like maybe we're too far gone. And look, let's be real, on your own, you are too far gone. All of us are. We deserve his wrath. Not a single one of us can atone for our own sin except through death and eternal punishment in hell. That's the payment. That's the debt we owe. And no amount of good is going to bring peace between us and God. But because Jesus suffered and died for us, receiving the full and complete measure of God's infinite wrath for the sins of his people, we are not hopeless. There is hope today, but it's not from within yourselves. It is extranos, that's the Latin for outside of us. Your hope is in the grace secured by Jesus Christ, and it is a perfect grace. It is a joyous grace. It is a grace that goes beyond anything you could ever even imagine or attempt yourself. So which will you choose today? Will you choose despair or will you choose hope? Because look, even true Christians can experience despair when we lean on our own ability to do what is good and right. We can experience that. Have you been there? Have you felt that? You're like, man, I, I, I messed up again. I don't know if God's going to forgive me this time. Yeah, he will. You trust in Jesus Christ, he forgives every single sin. Go and live like you're free. I want to close today with a passage from Romans 7. I know I've been doing a lot of reading today, but man, I'm trying to get the word of God to you guys. So we're going to go for it. Romans 7, 15 through 8, 1. This is a... just. Just sit here and, and take it in for a minute. This is a description of the Christian life. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is all I keep on doing. Now if I do, not, do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I do right, evil lies close at hand. Don't you know that's true? For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then Paul says, what I think, I hope, that we all feel. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve, may serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And then in 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
wretched man that I am for whom there is no condemnation if I am in Christ. Hope is not found in yourself this morning. It's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God is gracious and merciful. So today, trust in Jesus and do not despair. Do not despair. Have joy. You are free. Paul elsewhere says that you are made free from the bondage of sin. You're free to go do what pleases God. What an incredible thing. You can make your heavenly Father happy. I love that. Trust in Christ this morning and do not despair. Because he paid the whole price, the whole price for all of your sin. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.